0: get your first book for just 9.99 by using the code chirp CHIRP one more time that's bookofthemonth.com use the code chirp and get reading Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible. You want to go get a free audiobook download? Just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash other people. You go there and you sign up for a free 45-day trial and you get yourself an audiobook download, a freebie, one on the house, compliments of the podcast. Uh, These are audiobooks. You know what those are, right? They're books that you listen to. They'll make you smarter. Just go to audibletrial.com. Dot com slash other people and uh, that's all you got to do okay do that it'll be good for you these are books you can listen to them go and get one. Oh my god you are not alone you have found other people
1: you and I have a friend in common
0: every stupid thing that a writer could do I've done I think it's really beautiful <laughs> Jesus dude
1: what a struggle you know it was incredible, you know. It's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one person at just one time, oh, right? Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me trying to get something across to you. This is not, to the best of my knowledge, something that Jonathan Franzen listens to while bird watching. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Nina McConagly. Her debut story collection, Cowboys and East Indians, is available now from five chapters books. I'm going to be talking with Nina in just a moment, so please get ready for that. Do some light stretching, whatever it is you need to do to prepare. Otherwise, uh, I hope you had a nice Valentine's Day, which is to say I hope you didn't play, uh, you know, pay any attention to it. I hope you didn't realize that it happened. I hope you ignored it entirely. And uh, refuse to participate because the whole thing is so obscenely fucking stupid that it makes me wanna puke. (laughs) That's how I feel about Valentine's Day and all holidays. I hate them all. That's how I feel. Thank you. You know, I I don't mean to sound overly uh, dark and pessimistic here. I'm married, I have a child, I have a good family, I'm very lucky uh you know in all the most important ways there's a lot of love in my life uh, i like love i would even go so far uh, as to say that i love love i appreciate love love is nice love is uh, friendly and you know i had a nice valentine's day uh, I, I gave my wife some roses i gave my daughter some tulips I, you know i will play along i'm not above it i'll play along i'll try uh, but for the most part, it was a relatively uneventful day. I think what I'm resentful of is, uh, I am resentful of the, uh, notion that I'm somehow supposed to make a spectacularly grand romantic gesture on this day. And if I fail to do it, I'm somehow a failure of a human being. It feels like a scam to me. And of course the, you know, persistent subtext is buy something, consume, be a consumer, perform, make a purchase. Go to an expensive dinner, whatever the case may be. It's annoying. Not to mention, it's cruel to people who don't have a relationship or don't have a lot of love in their particular life situation at the present time. Uh, I remember being single on Valentine's Day back in the day. And, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But it does make you feel kind of shitty, right? You get a little bitter kind of a quiet day. You're a little moody. You don't feel like doing anything in public (laughs) after the sun goes down, especially you just want it to be over with because it's annoying and uh, it's a reminder that you haven't gotten laid in two years, (laughs) you know, and then people will say, well, how about doing something romantic? How about spreading the love some other way? It doesn't have to be much. You could write a letter. You could write a poem. Please. Just leave me alone. (laughs) With the poetry on Valentine's Day. Don't ever give me a poem on Valentine's Day. Stop with it. It's crazy making. These holidays. And yeah, yes. I want holidays where people don't have to work. I want people to have days off. I want to have days off. The more, the better by all means, but quit telling me what to do on my day off. I don't want to be instructed on how I'm supposed to behave by some fucking corporation. (laughs) I got enough to worry about. And, and Valentine's day, you don't even get the day off, which makes it doubly shitty. Which is why uh, president's day is a good holiday. If there is such a thing and isn't it tomorrow? Isn't Monday, President's Day? I don't even know when it is. That's how good of a holiday it is. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to have the day off uh, on President's Day, you don't have to do anything. It's just President's Day. What are you, like? What are you supposed to do? Sit around all day thinking about the president? <laughs> Nobody does that. Nobody does anything. They just do what they want to do. And that's what a holiday is supposed to be. There should never be any instructions. Just leave people alone. For God's sake. Enough with these cultural traditions. Do I sound bitter? Are you worried about me? (laughs) Are you judging me silently? It's okay. I love you. I forgive you. My guest today is Nina McConaugly. Her debut story collection, Cowboys and East Indians, is available now from Five Chapters Books. It's a great pleasure to have her here on the program. I had a lot of fun talking with her so here she is folks this is nina mcconagly and her book once again is called cowboys and east indians
1: i am in um my office at the university of wyoming in laramie wyoming and um this office used to be an old dorm back in 1916 or whenever it was built so uh I always when I'm in here think if the walls could talk.
0: Right, right, right. Well, so in Wyoming, like I yeah. don't think I've talked to an author in Wyoming yet. Mm-hmm. And I but I have some like Wyoming road trip experiences cuz I went to college in Colorado and so it was just up the road.
1: Yeah, a lot of people are taking road trips to Colorado these days from Wyoming.
0: Why? Oh yeah, right. Uh, oh yeah, the pot. I forgot.
1: Yeah, yeah the pot. And um it's cuz we only actually live I only live 18 miles from the Colorado border, so um quite convenient i mean for many people but
0: not for me yeah right (laughs) no 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 (laughs) so wait is there like a dispensary right across the border that's got to be i didn't think about that but i guess if you're like uh in a bordering state to colorado and you're near the border then people would just be driving across and having little vacations or whatever
1: yeah no everyone goes to fort collins because that's 60 miles away but it's it's pretty funny like we've receive like many, uh, email from like the university of Wyoming police department reminding us we are not a suburb of Colorado and that we need to behave accordingly.
0: (laughs) Oh, I think it's so ridiculous. I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but I mean, like, because I'm a parent, so I try to like think about what I would say to my daughter when she gets older, mm-hmm. and like it's not going to make you smarter. It's not going <laughs> to, you know, it's not going to like solve your problems. It's, but I mean, in a world where uh, alcohol and cigarettes are legal, we're anybody, mm-hmm. you know, we're completely uh, idiotic if we criminalize this. You know, I know. So, I know.
1: Well, the the Wyoming legislature legislature started meeting this week, and it was already it was already shot down. So I uh, guess.
0: Well, Wyoming's, Wyoming's, I mean, that's a different, I mean, I guess, I mean, Colorado isn't like a super lefty state, but I guess it's getting more lefty and Wyoming certainly isn't, uh, like it's an interesting environment. And the truth is that I don't really understand Wyoming. Um, like what, tell me about Wyoming. What is, what is Wyoming?
1: (laughs) Oh, where to begin? Um, yeah, it's a weird state. I mean, I've grown up here my whole life, so Um, we moved here when I was 10 months old. Um, and I still don't know that I have a sense of what Wyoming is. I mean, it's, I guess it's a lot of the stereotypes of like cowboy and Westerny and, um,
0: it's the least populated state in the union. Is it not? It is the least populated state in the union because I remember, I think I want to say the last time I was in Wyoming was, God, it was a long time ago and I was driving across the country uh east to west and i went to jackson hole to yeah. visit a friend who was living up there this was like right after college so this friend of mine was being a ski bum and living in jackson hole and I- I went up to stay with him for a few days and, uh, I just remember the drive up to Jackson hole being like a moonscape. Like, I mean, there's nothing, you know what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> like yeah. that's, that's what I think of it. I mean, it's just these wide open spaces and, and if you really want to be alone and you want to be out in the middle of nature and, and also like harsh nature, like Wyoming, right. is, Wyoming has some pretty, um, harsh nature. I mean, it's the cold and the wind and the lightning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know if you've ever read, um, God, what is her name? who writes about Wyoming? And she was like struck by lightning.
1: Oh, Gretel Ehrlich. Yeah. Gretel Ehrlich. Yeah. Ehrlich. I read a lot of
0: Gretel Ehrlich when I was in college. Yeah. Cause I yeah, was...
1: and she... no, sorry. She, she sort of captures that really well. in like the solace of open spaces and my dad's a geologist. So like he's out in the field all the time. And, um, yeah, I know a lot of people who've actually been hit by
0: lightning. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever been hit by lightning? Nina?
1: I have not. <laughs> um, but I know some people that, that have And in, um, yeah a lot of a lot of my ranch friends have which is kind of crazy
0: and survive and live to tell about it
1: and live to tell but i actually i had one friend who did not live to tell so that was that was actually my prom date in in, for my senior year in high school did not he he was hit by lightning so yeah it it is a harsh it is a harsh environment here in some ways
0: okay so in your, your you said your father's a geologist like how did you wind up there you moved there when you were 10 months old
1: yeah, my dad works. Well, my, my dad's a petroleum geologist. So um, he's an oil and gas geologist. So of course, Wyoming, along with all the beautiful nature, there's a lot of drilling and coal and um, a lot of oil production. And so we moved, we were transferred from Singapore to Wyoming of all places. My mom, like she had looked up Wyoming in like an encyclopedia at a library and she saw pictures of Jackson Hole and Yellowstone and thought, oh, this is great. And then we (laughs) firmly moved to an oil and gas town and she was shocked that there were not like Alp like mountains nearby. So,
0: okay. So you were born in Singapore?
1: hmm I was okay. born in Singapore.
0: And your parents yeah. uh, are, is it Singaporean? <laughs> Singaporean?
1: No, it's funny. My mom's from India and my dad is grew up in Ireland. So they're both actually, they didn't grow up in the U.S. And so um, my dad is in the Peace Corps in India and he met my mom there. And um, the rest is history.
0: <laughs> okay. So where is your dad? Your dad grew up in Ireland, you said?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and, it's he, always funny with McConaughey being my last name because people are like McConaughey? this Irish last name. But
0: it's almost like McConaughey. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. Or isn't there a professor in Harry Potter who McGon? McGonag-
0: I, is I'm not it? an I'm not a Harry Potter expert yet, but my know. daughter my daughter will be old enough soon. I'm sure I'll get into it. But
1: yeah, I think there's a similar name in in Harry Potter as well. So.
0: Okay, so your dad was in the Peace Corps, but he was, can Irish people be in the Peace Corps?
1: No, so he had become an American. He had gone to college in the U.S. and he had um, and he had become an American citizen. Probably not that much before he was in the Peace Corps, and it was in the '60s. And, and Peace Corps is not even in India anymore. But he, um, yeah, he he. Uh,
0: he joined. He came-
1: he joined. He he was a committed new American citizen. I was so. going to
0: say he wanted to serve. That's I think that's cool. And I, I who did I just talk to? I talked to somebody who tried to be in the Peace Corps. I think it was uh, my last guest, Aubrey Hirsch, and she like applied and didn't get in. And like that's kind of like depressing to think that like you can want to be in the Peace Corps and they can be like, no, sorry, you can't go spread peace. Like we're not allowing that. Uh, but he got in, fortunately. He went to India. Yeah. What part of India was he in, and, and what was he doing? He sounds like a, a smart guy if he's like a geologist. and
1: Yeah, he was building wells. Yeah, he was building wells, and he was living in um, Varanasi. And my mother was a journalist, and she was living in New Delhi. And um, she they met at some – it was a Christmas party, and someone had felt sorry for all the Peace Corps volunteers and invited them. So they met there, and – that was 1969, so a long time. It was kind of crazy, a long time ago. The
0: rest is history, okay? And so the rest is history. Then they were in Singapore because he got a job over there, or is that another Peace Corps stationing? You don't move around. No,
1: yeah, he got a job as a geologist, and I, I think you know the 70s, like people for a lot of geologists, it was oil and gas, and still oil and gas. So, um, yeah, he, and then we moved from from Singapore. Um, to Wyoming, which my mother didn't unpack our house for the first year we lived here. She couldn't comprehend that this was her home. <laughs> um, she just saw the wind and, and the weather and just thought, no, no. And um,
0: and that's Laramie. It, it,
1: it, well, I grew up in Casper, so right in the middle of the state. And oh, okay. um, Now I'm in Laramie, um, but yeah, Casper. It's it's a strange little town. It's it's you know it, A lot of people drive through on the way to Yellowstone or Jackson.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't think I've been to cat. I don't think I have been to Casper. Maybe I passed through it or passed by it, but like what, how many people live there?
1: Well, it is it is the second largest city. We have a um, Olive Garden and a Red Lobster, (laughs) so that differentiates us from a lot of cities. Casper, I think now is like sixty three thousand. It gets big. I mean, that's big for Wyoming.
0: Yeah, that's big for Wyoming. I live in Los Angeles, so that's like my neighborhood.
1: (laughs) Right, (laughs) and I can't wrap my head around Los
0: Angeles. So I can't either. It's it's completely the opposite, but. Um, okay. So you grew up in Casper and, um, you know, you're from this like, uh, you know, biracial, uh, coupling Mm -hmm. marriage. So what was it like? I can't imagine there were a lot of biracial kids growing up in Casper, Wyoming.
1: No, there, there, there were not. And, um, my sister and I pretty much growing up were the only Brown kids in our, in our schools, um, all through elementary school. Um, in my, I think in my high school graduating class, which was big. It was like 400 some. I think there were, it was me and one other Arapaho, uh, Arapaho Indian, Native American. And that was about it.
0: (laughs) That was uh, it. Were were people, I mean, were people cool or was it, was there, were there issues or anything?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's, Uh, it's complicated because I, you know, I I grew up here and I really, I love Wyoming and I've chosen to come back to Wyoming, but um, yeah, certainly growing up. And I think that angst comes out a lot in my book and it's sort of, it's been interesting, like, like people who've read my book who I went to school with or who have known me for a long time. They were just like, Oh, I didn't know it was hard for you to be the only Brown person in the room. And I thought, (laughs) yeah, kind of a little bit,
0: but I mean, okay. So, but was it, Was it something that you felt overtly or experienced overtly from other people, or was it something that you internally felt? Do you know what I'm saying? Was it like this otherness yeah. that you felt because of the, your difference of appearance, or did you get actual, like, you know?
1: Uh, I mean, actual, yeah, both. I mean, it, the, the little opening snippet is like a little flash fiction piece in the beginning of my book. Um, th- that That's... That little story is true, which is my, my cousin had just moved from India, and the two of us were on the playground, and um, these kids called us niggers, and, you know, it was just, we went home, and I didn't really understand the word, but I kind of was like, I think that's a bad word, and my mom was trying to ask what we had been called, because I was upset, and my cousin said, oh, we were called Snickers, because like, he thought we were, <laughs> he thought like it was a kid, <laughs> he thought because we were brown like a candy bar, That was what we were being called, and um, kids like are great. that moment... Was, yeah, right. Like, he was just like, Snickers. It's because, you know, we're dark. It's great. He thought it was like the best compliment ever because he loves American chocolate. And I think, um, you know, there were like a few incidents like that. And weirdly, in my high school, like, now I look back and I just think, oh my God. But my nickname in high school was Mino because I was the only minority in our class. And I just, I look back now and I think, that was a terrible thing that people called me. <laughs> but, at the time i don't know you want to fit in and you don't say like
0: no but like that funny, that makes right? sense that makes sense to me because like i endured similar or not similar but like uh, I, I endured humiliations and i think right. everybody does in adolescence to some extent that when you look back on it you're like i can't believe i put up with that shit but like you know you just sort of like chuckle or somebody it could be just something somebody says to you and instead of like drawing a line or say you know Telling them that that that's not okay, you you just sort of laugh it off and accept it in some sort of desperate attempt to assimilate. Or, I know, it's terrible.
1: Yeah, I just had my high school reunion, and actually, someone came up to me and was like, "That was a terrible name we called you." And I thought, yeah, it probably wasn't good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but at the same time, because these things are complicated, like, do you think that there was, um, you know, real negativity in that, or do you think like? Because the, I mean, the, the thing about it is that, like, I don't think it was... Or you can speak to this better than I could. Was there mean-spiritedness in it? Or was it no. just, like, people trying to, like, acknowledge the difference and, like, the way that it made them feel? And do you know what I'm saying? Like,
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't... I don't you know, I feel like every time I've been... Like, it hasn't been that many times. But the few times that I have, like, had sort of weird, like... People say weird things to me here in Wyoming. It's, it's... I think it's just, like, a fear of the unfamiliar. I don't think it's particularly out of, like... You know, the only time that I felt like it was mean was, like, post 9-11. I had some people, like, tell me to go back to my own country. And, again, we don't – there's so few brown people here that I guess I I don't – we all lump together in some ways. But, I mean, that I felt a little nervous. Like, I remember thinking, like, oh, God, is this going to be what it's going to be like now? Um, It's all fear.
0: It's all fear. Yeah. It really is all fear. And, like, you know, it's funny to think about – or not funny to think about, but it's interesting to think about racism and the way that people view race and how things work um, with regard to geography. Because it feels like, you know, when I think of Wyoming or the American West, you know, you don't necessarily equate that with um, the kinds of, you know, racial tension Mm-mm, that you mm-hmm. would see in the American South. Like, I never, I never, right. I never yeah. got like a strong racist vibe living in colorado but then in retrospect Mm -hmm. i look back and i'm like it's a pretty white place and it's you know there's it could easily like the way that i always characterize it now looking back is that there's a lot of texas in colorado right Uh, right right. there's kind of like this you know and it's and some of that's good you know it's kind of like fun Mm -hmm. loving and people have these like big personalities and it's like Big fun, and like, let's go to the mountains and let's drink beer. And I don't know, it just seems Texas to me. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm sure that, like, if you say that there's uh, a Texas element, that there's also some of the you know darker southern racial stuff embedded in there somewhere. It might, yeah. does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, it's always funny to me. Um, you know, my mom was a journalist here, and I a couple when dick cheney is from my dick cheney is from my hometown of course and when he um he uh and when he became secretary of defense this was way back in the 90s um he wyoming has some like weird laws about like he gave up his congressional seat and this crazy man moved to wyoming and within i guess you only have to have residency for like two weeks to run for congress and um he you know he was a His campaign manager was like the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, and he was really crazy and had all these skinheads that were like passing out, passing out material for him. And, you know, this state did not have it like they did not like it at all. And I think, um, you know, I don't think of Wyoming as like a particularly racist place. It's just really white, you know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's really not diverse. And, um,
0: how do you that change guy, that? How do you, yeah. I mean, you know, like how, what's the, I mean, it's not like they're keeping people of color out, right? I mean, there's no, no people of color just don't want to live there.
1: <laughs> they just don't want to. I mean, I, when I moved back here, this, I only moved back in August, last August. And, um, a lot of my friends were like, how, oh, why, <laughs> Like, why would you do it? Like, why move back? To why, w-
0: where, why would you, you
1: know, cause I love this. I love the geography of the state. I mean, I love the mountains. I love the open space. I mean, I guess it's everything that is such a cliche, but I I love the sky and I love, I don't know, Wyoming to me is just, I'm happiest here, you
0: know? Yeah, it's I'm home. It's here. home. And, and you know what? It's beautiful. You know, it's really, yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. You go to uh, the Rocky Mountains, especially like coming from like the you know, where I am now where it's like super urban and like I can go for Mm -hmm. long, long stretches of time where I don't leave the city, you know, Mm -hmm. or even if I do, I'm still in like the megalopolis because it really is, it's just like this gigantic thing. So like whenever I get out into open space and like, you know, really clean air and I'm at elevation and it's like, you know, that's, that's tough to beat.
1: I mean, it's just, yeah, I can't, I can go, I can cross country ski before school. I can, I, I just yeah I love this. I love the open space, and you and, know I also think I guess maybe I do feel like as a brown person i should I should come back and live here and make it make it more diverse you know? <laughs>
0: right right well, and
1: I'm doing my one little bit
0: well, but you know what this is a, this is a thing that I think uh writers and people who are into the arts can often fall into the trap of and i've I'm certainly been at least partially guilty of this in the past is that like you know you feel like you need to be near some cultural center, you need right, to be where right. the action is. Um, and what that I mean, you think about like, uh, the glut of writers in say Brooklyn, which is like Mm -hmm. what, you know, much written about and much talked about. And, um, you know, it's just, I think it's a natural thing. People want to be near New York. They want to have, you know, they want to have entree to publishing and everything else. And there's a lot of great work being written in Brooklyn, but I mean, I think it's safe to say that it's pretty well saturated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think what you do. Um, living where you do in Wyoming, and writing about your experience, which is unique within that context um, mm-hmm. you know you 're not up against like six million other writers you know what i 'm right, like, right. there 's not you know that 's sort of cool too i think it 's interesting when writers um, you know, I think of like Scott McClanahan who i 've had on this show who um, you know lives in West Virginia, grew up there and writes um, from that experience and you know, I think that readers uh, can respond really well to that because they're getting yeah. something that they don't normally get. There are a lot of story collections and novels um, that take place in Brooklyn Brownstones, you know, mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. not a ton of uh, collections like yours. I mean, do you think about that when you uh, sit down to write?
1: Yeah, because I i mean, the thing I was thinking about one when- a lot was that there, what, there aren't that many narratives about rural immigrant experiences, like people like Jhumpa Lahiri and Chitra Karuni, who are, you know, two Indian writers I love who have beautiful story collections. um, They, for Jhumpa Lahiri, it's, it's Boston that she writes about. And um, Chitra writes about like Houston and, and California and just places where there are a lot of other Indians. And, you know, growing up, like, You know, most of the time people were like, what tribe are you to me? And, um, you know, we thought we were the other kind of Indian. And um, so I I think it's kind of interesting to write about being an immigrant in a really rural place, like where we don't have an Indian restaurant. We don't have – there's no grocery stores. There's no other Indian – you know, there's no other Indians, really. So.
0: You never met, there were were no other Indians that you met growing up, I guess, in Casper?
1: I mean, on and off, there would be, again, with oil and gas industry, like there would be, we probably knew, we would occasionally know one family or, you know, a family would move in and then they would move out or, um, yeah, so I knew, I guess, a few growing up, maybe like five, (laughs) on and off, but my mom is, because we've been here so long, my mom meets a lot of Um, Indians in very odd circumstances like she's a translator for the hospital um, or she's on a list of translators but it's quite funny because they'll be like we need you to talk Indian and of course you know my mom speaks Tamil and you know there's so many languages in India so it doesn't really make sense but we've met people in kind of odd circumstances
0: well and and Um, have you been back to India I'm assuming you've gone and visited and
1: yeah I have I I, growing up we didn't go too much just because it was so expensive but um I later went and worked in India, I actually worked at a publishing house in India for a year, and that was am- that was amazing and where um, in Chennai and um, Tara books in chennai and that was just a really cool experience, partly just to be around other artists and writers, but to kind of see a totally different side of publishing. they did a lot of handmade books and it was, it was great
0: okay and so what was the, what was the experience like living in India because I have a friend who Uh, traveled there last summer and, you know, had, had a great time, but it was like, he said it was really difficult place to travel or maybe at least it it was for him. Like, did you have that experience?
1: Yeah, because uh, yeah. And I, it was, it actually sort of crippled me the first like two months I lived there because I was, I had gone and visited before visited family, but living there, it is difficult. Like day to day life is just a little bit, it's just a little bit harder. And, for for me, it was just a space, space, spatially, I was completely thrown off by like having, you know, so many people around and when you're on a bus or a train, it's just like you're packed in and, I'm just used to Especially coming, Wyoming. yeah,
0: I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> coming from Wyoming. We got space here. You're like, get out of my you know, sphere. You're like, you know, pressed up. Yeah. I think about that with regard to public transportation too. Like I look yeah. at, I've seen like these pictures, I've never been to Japan, but you see those pictures of like the Tokyo subway where people are going right. and you're just like, how, like how can you do that? Like, that's just, you know, that's, that's too close for comfort. And I live in Los Angeles, but I, I guess even here we have more space compared to other yeah you know, urban places because there's so much land, but, um, you know, with respect to India, uh, I think that, you know, it's such like, a. I I wish I, I wish I could speak from my own experience. I'm I'm kind of like relaying this all secondhand, but like my friend was trying to describe it to me and it was like this just sensory overload because I was getting, I was getting these emails on a daily basis and like what he was seeing and, um, you know, everything from like the beauty of the place and like the history of the place to like, like you were talking about, like the incredible amount of people and the Mm kind, like in Delhi, you know, like he was, you know, completely overwhelmed. And then, um, the poverty that he was seeing was just, you know, kind of staggering because it's, um, it's not like you're not cordoned off from it, you know, in the way that, in the way way that you might be like insulated from it in America, you know, like, I feel like in in American cities, like Los Angeles, like we have like 10,000 homeless people, but they're all like living downtown, like away from you know, where everybody else. Y- y- yeah. Or most people live. So, I mean, did you come up against that when you were in India and, and like have difficulty with it?
1: I, I did. And I mean, it's sort of, I mean, as you just said, it's, it's poverty on a level that you haven't seen. It's just, it's, it's kind of incomprehensible that people live, um, live in such rough conditions in this day and age. But I, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, it, yeah, I mean, I, we, going to work or walking to work I would it, it just it it's still something I can't comprehend and I it's funny because I teach an Indian lit class here at the University of Wyoming and it's most of my students are taking it because of it's their global awareness requirement and um it's just it's amazing to me like to try to to explain India to this group of kids in Wyoming who a lot of them have never even you know hardly a lot of them have even been out of state um it's it's just you can't. <laughs> did, you you can't. Become,
0: did you become, like, inured to it? Like, I mean, you lived there for a year, and, like, I've always said that uh, if you're moving from place to place, like, you can't really judge a place or make any decisions about whether or not you want to stay until you've lived there for a year. You have to, act, yeah. you have to give yourself time to acclimate. So, you know, it's obviously a big culture shock from Wyoming to India. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you find yourself eventually, you know, did it, did, did it normalize to see this on a daily basis?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it did. I certainly felt very um at the end of at the end of the time ta- my time there. I mean, I was actually really proud of myself in terms of like, oh, I can take a you know a bus and not really be bothered if you know six people are crammed in the seat. Um, <laughs> if but, there's an
0: old man sitting in my lap, it's fine. Yeah,
1: right, exactly. <laughs> I was on a train once when someone handed me their baby, and I like held their baby for like three hours, and I thought, oh, okay. And, wow. Um, it was just yeah. So I think I definitely and when I came back to Wyoming after after
0: india i wait, was wait wait a little wait, wait, wait. i want to stop I, st- I want to stop you for a second someone handed you their baby for three hours <laughs>
1: yes on the train for real i probably should have I, yes yes it was a trip to pondicherry and they just i they got on and i, I couldn't can tell the exact family configuration and just put her baby in my lap she's I, I thought i was holding it for a second and then she just didn't is didn't,
0: that is that normal is that something that happens in indian culture I don't know.
1: I don't know, but I was like, oh, okay. Okay. It was a very well-behaved child. It was sad and sad. I
0: changed its diaper. It was fine.
1: Right. I fed it. No, it was was crazy. But yeah, but when I came back to Wyoming, I think that's when I noticed. I'm like, wow, people aren't out on the street and, you know, talking. And it just seemed very quiet. And our neighborhood seemed very very bland in comparison because outside of where we lived, it was like, you know, people walking by every five seconds, like it was just, it was, it was really lively.
0: Okay. Did you find, uh, did you find that in retrospect, the people in India, despite all of the difficulties and, you know, uh, poverty and the closeness and like, you know, the, you know, just the challenges that life there can present. Did -hmm. you find that people in India, generally speaking, seemed happier than people they did? Yes. For been American yeah. people. So you come back and yeah. it's like for all of our, you know, uh, financial advantages or whatnot, the infrastructural advantages, people in America seem less happy.
1: To, to me, yes. And also just obsessed with time and kind of, I mean, one of the things I loved about India is that we would have power outages all the time. So like internet would, I mean, even working in a publishing house, our internet would go out, things would happen. And it was kind of like, what to do? You can't really do anything. And I came back here and it's just like, everyone's, I don't know. I feel like I'm,
0: I feel like if the internet went, if the internet goes out in America, it's the worst thing that could happen. I
1: know. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, even myself now I would be freaked, but it's just, it's just, I feel like people just, the pace just seems slower. Everything seemed, it just was, it was such a better, a better thing. So I'm kind of, I don't know. I, I, I I, there are ways I'm, I'm I mean, I want to live in Wyoming, but I wish if I could have my ideal situation, it would be, I live in Wyoming for, you know, six months of the year, seven months of the year, and then live in India the rest of the time. But
0: That's interesting. And, you know, it's interesting because you go abroad and you have these, you know, you see how other people do it, you know, and Mm -hmm. it just reminds you that like there are different ways to uh, skin the cat, you know, like life is not, like life is not just one way. I mean, I think there are certain aspects to uh, existence that are fundamental to us all, but like there are, there are different approaches and it's, it's, Difficult to go on one of these trips or to have one of these experiences and then to come home and to try to find a way to like permanently integrate it. I don't find. I don't. I fi- I've never been able to do it. I, you know. I don't. Uh, me either. Yeah, it's a shame. Me and I just, you know, but it's also in some ways, um, it's like both. Simul- it's like both depressing and encouraging to imagine that, um, you know, that America for all of its advantages you know, quote unquote advantages, um, doesn't produce a happier culture than, um, you know, countries or societies where, mm-hmm. um, you know, poverty can be really intense and the standard of living is a lot lower. Like it just, it, it depresses me because it's like, Oh God, I live here and, you know, like, it's not as happy yeah. as it could be, but then it encourages me because it makes me think, you know, maybe we should rethink this. Maybe like, you know, the American mm-hmm. dream and having all of this money and what everyone else seems to be chasing um you know maybe that's that's fool's gold and maybe we could rethink what actually makes us happy and we could rejigger how we uh build our societies like, I don't mean to. No,
1: know. no, I know. Because I mean, the, one of the things that I loved is because I worked at a publishing house. Like I, this was like just post after my MFA. So I was like having that like MF, you know, I just graduated. What do I do? Um, I was having a lot of book anxiety. And um, to go and work at a publishing house where most of the artists and writers that worked for worked for us didn't. They were doing their art for the sake of art, like they you know, they so there were just no, there was no personality. There it was just so much
0: pure, you
1: know, you know it was like a lot less personality was going on, and it, and it's a lot less like showboating and kind of um, that kind of stuff. And I just I really liked it. Kind of rem- reminded me like, oh right, this is why we do our art or we do our work. Like we,
0: why do we do it? You know,
1: yeah, right. Like <laughs> no, you do well, it, yeah, and not necessarily get published, and it's just I don't know,
0: just like, for the joy of it,
1: right. And and, and I met the people that i met there were
0: were
1: i don't know it was just like the best it was probably the best place i could have gone post mfa because it was just reminded me like don't be crazy about it just do your work (laughs) so
0: you know that's the truth i think i fall into that i think i'm a person who gets crazy about it and i need to go to india
1: (laughs) (laughs) i recommend it highly i recommend it highly i'm
0: packing up my family and i'm moving (laughs) we're gonna go there Uh, but you know, that's true. I think, I think like you can get spun out mentally into all these sorts of neurotic tangles and it's just needless, you know, like do it or don't do it. If you want to do it, if you're compelled to do it and you find something valuable in it or it's fun for you, great. Um, but you know, there's also the issue of how to make a living and it sounds like, it sounds like you've combined academics in the way that so many writers do as a way Mm -hmm. to kind of support your art. Um, mm-hmm. was that something that you kind of like stumbled into, or was that something that when you got your MFA was part of the calculation?
1: I guess it was part of the calculation. I had done an MA before my MFA, um, in English and I, I had liked teaching then. And then, you know, I went, to, I did my MFA at the university of Houston, which has a very high teaching load. We teach two, two there. And, um, what so, does that mean? What
0: does that mean? Oh,
1: two? classes a semester. Oh, okay. And, um, which, you know, most people in MFA programs, probably teach one. And, um, and I, I really like I always have really liked teaching and I like my students and I know some, for some people it's, I mean, it is hard cause you want to do your own work, but at the same time, I love that I get to have conversations about stories I love. And, um, you know, like this week I've taught Flannery O'Connor and it's like, it's awesome to, to be able to like sit with a group of smart kids and have them talk about, a, a great story. So I, I like that and I find it is good for my work. So.
0: Well, it's just, it's just, it's different strokes for different folks. And I think like if, you, if you're you going to have to work a day job to support your writing habit, whatever day job you do is going to drain, it's going to drain vital energies from your writing life. That's just the nature right. of it. And I guess the question is like, you know, I, I think some people function better creatively when they're working a mm-hmm. job that has nothing to do with right, writing. Right. And some people, mm-hmm. um, you know, their, their creativity or their, you know, writerly impulse is fed by it rather than like, um, right. what, what's the word devoured by it.
1: <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting because I don't teach creative writing at all, which is like, I think maybe I would feel different. Maybe I would feel more drained if I was teaching creative writing. Like I, that's a good I, I point. straight up, yeah, I straight up teach a lit. So like for me, it's like, well, that's, um, it's more just like reading and talking. <laughs> and
0: yeah, so right, right.
1: I don't know, I don't know what it would be like to, you know, yeah, I don't know if I was having to critique a bunch of. I, maybe I, I would feel differently if I was. I think if I was teaching creative writing.
0: Well, I taught I taught creative writing and I taught English comp and um, I loved teaching, but the grading. Yeah, the grading. I think I think most teachers are like that. It's great to be. It's great to be in the classroom. It's great to be talking with your students. It's great to have that back and forth. And the then grading. And you, you take home like four hundred pages of like you yeah. know shitty writing that you have to like correct comma splices in or whatever, and it's just know, like yeah. oh my god, but. Um, that's you know, not every job is going to be uh, all fun and games. I guess.
1: <laughs> no, but they they're turning in a I mean, they're turning a paper in tomorrow. My one of my classes, and I just thought oh, the jig is up. This the, the, it's gonna my weekend is ruined. But right. <laughs> it's like, but I don't. I I mean, yeah. I but for the most part, I do like the balance, and I like the I like having the summers off.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, as far as professions go that are uh, you know have like a nice symbiosis with write, the writing life, it's hard to say. That there's one better than, um, you know, a college professor. Uh, You know, I don't think I, I can't think of one. I'm sure there might be a few others, but that seems like the, the natural course. So, um, you got, you said you got your MA in English, and then you got your MFA in creative Mm -hmm. writing. Uh, I'm curious to know when you started thinking of yourself um, as a writer. Like, I'm imagining that you sort of Mm -hmm. inherited the bug from your mom, who worked as a journalist, and then. Um, you know, where do you trace it back to? Uh, you know were you an early you know early on person who knew that they were going to write from the get go or did you uh bloom later you know, on
1: i well, I always wrote as i mean I guess probably everyone does that who's a writer like wrote a lot as a kid, and I like would enter young authors and silly stuff like that um but I never wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be like a archaeologist or something exciting like that um
0: like Indiana and, Jones
1: yeah right <laughs> that's basically it yeah and <laughs> And then I was in co- when I was in college. Like I always liked English, so I was an English major. But I, I, oh boy, I also took a lot of other. Cl- I was like, I'm going to be an anthropologist. I'm going to be a religion major. I mean, I just was all over the place. But but, but the, I wasn't writing that seriously then.
0: I feel so like I, I feel like anthropology and religion and philosophy are all good courses of study for somebody who winds up as a writer. And might be,
1: yeah, I it, think so too. Right? It yeah. Might be
0: even better than like an explicitly writerly approach because it gives you kind of a broader base of education or something i don't know
1: yeah yeah no i i i I think so and like i i had i was really into ornithology back in those days and i um i had banded birds for the fish and wildlife for a summer up in jackson and i really wanted to be an ornithologist very very much so but i really was not good enough in the sciences and and then i started realizing like the things i liked about birds were like I like Terry Tempest Williams writing about birds. I like I liked more like literature about birds. Than right. I actually maybe liked,
0: you know, studying chemistry. So, um And so when you say you were banding birds, does that mean you were like capturing them in nets mm-hmm. and then putting little rings on their legs?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah, the mist nets and they like they were all perching birds, so they would immediately of course try to perch on these nets and get tangled and yeah, I, well, I ran a maps they're called map stations
0: i ran one of those oh cool yeah like one of the most uh like i have a very um what's it, a very clear memory as a kid i went to this nature camp when i was like six uh-huh. or seven years old and um they put up one of those bird nets in the forest uh in wisconsin and we we camped out overnight and like you know made s'mores or whatever and then uh-huh. uh the next morning we hiked out into the woods and looked at the birds in the net and there were like you know two or three birds that had gotten caught <laughs> and, uh, they asked us to guess the weight of the bird and oh. I got closest. And so they let me hold the bird and release it. Mm. And, uh, that like, I, I've never forgotten that. I thought that was like, I mean, as a kid, you can imagine Amazing. like, a I won the contest and then B I like, I got to hold the bird. <laughs>
1: what kind of bird was it? Do you remember? Oh my
0: God. I want to say it was like a thrush or yeah. you know, I forget. It was something and, you know, but it was like, I got to hold it and then I let it go and it flew out and, you know, it was mm-hmm. a, a magical childhood experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it is magical. And like, there's, and sometimes we'd catch birds that had already been banded and they had been banded in like South America. And, you know, these are tiny birds. You just think, wow. No way. Migrated a long way, little, little bird. That's, so, yeah,
0: birds are crazy. I mean, you know, they're crazy. They are they, crazy. Be like, uh, not to get uh, too sentimental or uh, whatever, but like the everyday miracles. You know, we just forget.
1: I know. I know. I feel like I experienced that more here in Wyoming so it's good.
0: <laughs> no, that is good and I think like I think that it is um part of you know or I know a, a strong component of human sickness is often being completely out of touch with nature you know like yeah. and having no interface with that whatsoever and that's not to say that you you can't have some interface with it if you live in a city you can you just have to maybe yeah. work at it a little bit harder or right. like you know notice the bird perched on right. the edge of the dumpster or whatever you like know, yeah, but it's a big thing I mean do you, do you find yourself uh, it sounds like with you know you said you cross country ski before work and stuff, so that's a big part of your life as as it is for most people who live in the Rocky Mountain West, you know like people get outside and do stuff yeah out there.
1: and you're and absolutely, and I think like I mean and I'm not even like the most outdoorsy person, like I feel like you know of course living in wyoming, there's some hardcore outdoor people um, I always say I'm a more poetic outdoorsman, but um <laughs> i but i yeah, I love, I mean, within like five minutes, I can be on the prairie and just like with nothing around. And I just, I love that. And, um, yeah, and it really feeds my right it feeds my writing life. And it, it's interesting because all my friends who like live in Brooklyn or, um, who live in bigger places, so many of them really want to do writing residencies in Wyoming. Like they're so popular, like Cross and Gentel and, um, Brush Creek Ranch. There's a, there's a couple of, of writing residencies and almost everyone I know who has written in Wyoming always says like, oh, I, I wish I could come back and write there. It's just, it's a really good place to, to work. I think too, that I think it's the nature. I think that's,
0: well, it's the nature it. and you get some fresh air and you have some space and you yeah. know, everything slows down considerably. Like I noticed that, um, you know, in, in going in both directions, like I, I remember moving from Colorado to Los Angeles and, uh, immediately being struck by the speed of life around me, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what's interesting is that you sort of acclimate to that, which I think is why I yeah. asked you about whether or not you normalized in India, because that's like another, you know, that's another huge thing to adjust to in all of its various ways. And what's, in, you know, I feel like people y- you normalize eventually. And nowadays, yeah. like Los Angeles, the pace of it, like driving on a five lane freeway and bumper to bumper traffic at seventy five miles an hour, is totally normal to me. <laughs> totally normal. I know.
1: When I first went to Houston for grad school, like the first, I was like, I'm never going to drive on a free, I was like, I'm never going to drive on a freeway. Of course, like it's Houston, you have to get on a freeway. But, um, I tried for the first like month. I was like, it's too fast. I'll be scared. Like I just, I was terrified to, to drive. But, um, but eventually like, by you know, within a few months I was like, feeling pretty badass as I. did you ever drive atmosphere. did you ever
0: drive in india that would be pretty badass ever- uh
1: hey, no <laughs> <laughs> that would be a no um yeah,
0: yeah.
1: that would be badass no i i no no
0: <laughs> yeah i just remember my friend was like in the back of those taxi cabs in delhi or whatever you call mm-hmm. them you know and he was like just taking video with his phone and sending me the video mm-hmm. and yeah. i was like holy there's just no rules you
1: know? <laughs> no there's no rules there's like yeah no <laughs> Never
0: well, I think it was a wise decision, just for what it 's worth that you you <laughs> opted for public transportation
1: I totally did, and um, but yeah, no, I mean to go back to your other question like i, I don 't think I ever like i just I had written a little bit, and you know after college, I got a job. <laughs> I don't, I can't explain why, but I got a job at, at Prudential Insurance for a year. And I was, it was like, it's actually the most money I've ever made in my adult life. I've never, <laughs> I've
0: never, never, never,
1: it. Uh, uh, yeah, which is sad. It was because it was only a year outside of college, but I took a night writing class at like, um, like a, like a community night writing class. And I think that was when I started to realize like, Oh, you really like writing and
0: this Not is your insurance. thing. This is your Yeah. You, yeah, don't like you so, didn't. You weren't born to ensure.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I hadn't taken like one creative writing class as an undergrad. I hadn't really like, I just wasn't on that, in that mode. So I, I, but when I started doing it, taking this night class, I, I really liked it. And I thought, okay.
0: And yeah. was this, was this post India or pre India? I'm trying this to get...
1: pre India. Yeah. This was like after my undergrad and, okay. um, and I was living in Minnesota. I went to college in Minnesota. So, um, where living, in Minnesota? Saint Olaf College. Oh
0: yeah, I want to say my wife is from Minnesota. I want to say that she was almost going to go there, and then the Saint Olaf. Uh, yeah, but then she wanted to get out of Minnesota. But yeah. um, so, uh, when you went to India, were you writing? Like, when did you start to actually sit down to write fiction and start to do it regularly?
1: So from that class, I was writing a lot, and then um, and then I did um, an MA here at the University of Wyoming. They didn't have an MFA, and I and I started taking some writing classes. Um, I took some writing classes then, and I, I thought, oh, I, I really, no, I really for sure like this. And um, and John DeGotta was visiting Wyoming for a semester at that time, and he, um, I was in his, like, workshop, it was, it was actually an undergrad workshop, even though I was a grad student. Um,
0: What's he like? I, re- I read about a mountain. I liked about a oh,
1: mountain. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. Um, he was amazing. He was really, um, I'm not a nonfiction writer, so I don't think I was writing very great stuff, but... I remember I had a conference with him about one of my essays and he just, when I came in, he said, where are you going to apply for an MFA? And I just thought, huh, I don't know. Like, and um, he was really instrumental in sort of like pushing me towards um, applying for an MFA and he did like letters of rec for me. And um, yeah, he was kind of the big catalyst to, to to kind of make me, I guess, take it more seriously and think, um,
0: yeah. He saw something kind of in an
1: yeah, I guess. so. I guess so. He's, he's really like, he's lovely. Cause like, I tried to write him once I got in my MS when I got my, when I got into Houston, I remember writing him and, and I said, it's because of you, I'm a good, I'm going to be a writer. And he was just like, no, you have to remember like every good thing that happens for you in your writing from now on is because of you. And I thought, Oh, okay. so
0: He's like, don't blame me. Don't blame yeah,
1: me. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so,
0: uh, but you said he's an enigma. Like how so? Like, is he just like a, like a, Mysterious. He's, just, fellow. he's
1: mysterious. He's a mysterious fellow. He um he's he was, but he's probably one of the most supportive and like amazing teachers. Like he gave us, I had never read like lyric essays. I didn't even know what a lyric essay was till this. And this was a while ago. This was like ten years ago. Um, he was he just really He kind of blew my mind with like the reading and people he introduced me to in terms of writers, their their work, and. He would bring us like cereal to class, cereal to class. <laughs> and, um,
0: what you mean, like bowls, bowls. Of, bowls of cereal? Yes,
1: he'd bring us like bowls of bowls and milk and everything. Oh he my was,
0: god! I mean, okay, I gotta stop you here, because like, like, there's nothing worse for me than like being in close range when someone's eating cereal like just (laughs) the whole crunching and the slurping. I know. So like, why would you, why would you invite that in mass? I know. Was everyone sitting there eating cereal? Yes. Yes, we
1: would. We'd eat cereal and he would bring us like, he just bring us amazing food every week. And he was, um, but, and I, yeah, because at that point I think only Hall's of fame was out. I think it was, he didn't have, I don't think he had another book at that time. So yeah, he was, he was really supportive and, but I don't feel like I know him well at all, even, which is kind of a, but he was, he was great.
0: Wow. Okay. So, um, when did you feel like, I mean, I know you kind of felt like this is something I'm interested in and this is something I want to pursue. Mm-hmm. He gave you some confidence and kind of validated, you know, mm-hmm. your instincts and said that, you know, you could I guess when the teacher tells you to go get an MFA, that's sort of like code for right. you have right. talent. But, right. um, what about your publication history? Like when did you start to so- publish?
1: That, not for a long time. And I think, I don't know, um, I was probably the only person in my MFA that never sent out a story in the course of my MFA. So I just, um, yeah, I don't, I, 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 the whole time I was in Houston, I just thought, oh no, I just want to work on, I mean, it sounds so Pollyanna to say, I want to work on my craft, but I, um, I just wanted to, to work on the writing and, um,
0: well, but you know what? You know what? Mm-hmm. I think like I think sometimes it's a, it's a it's part of a a, a good skill set for a writer is knowing when to publish and knowing when not right. to publish, you know, and I think uh, people can rush into it because they want to see their words in print and it can be too right. early, you know, or right. they or they'll just get rejected flat out. But I mean, it seems like you maybe had a, uh, a good sense of where you were.
1: I just didn't, I, yeah, I just I don't, I don't know. I just didn't, I wasn't sending out and I wasn't really thinking about it. And it wasn't until after I graduated um, and it was actually right before I went to India. Um, I was, um, I was on, I was on staff at the Breadloaf Loaf Writers Conference for several years and, um, and I had had a workshop that fall with Kevin McIlvoy, and he, he had said to me like, why aren't you sending out? And I said, oh, it doesn't feel ready. It doesn't feel ready. And he was like, you know, you know, I think there is the other side of the coin of like people send out too early. But he said it. He, he was like, you know, if you send out, it just says who you are as a writer right now. It's not who you're going to be for the rest of your life. So just stop worrying and send, start sending some stuff out. And so, for actually from India was where I first started. Um, I I sent a story to VQR and they and they took it while I was while I was living in India. So that was kind of amazing. And
0: that must have been nice. It was really nice. Yes,
1: yeah. it, it was really nice because they pay. Um, and it's an amazing magazine. But that was kind of, that was my first, that was my first publication. So um, the, the story was also rejected a million other places too, but um, the VQR took it.
0: So, Well, that's interesting because VQR has got to be pretty discerning. And like that tells you something about the acceptance and rejection process. Like it just takes one. and
1: I know, right? It's
0: obviously a very subjective uh, thing.
1: Yeah. So, so, and it was, and it was good cause I was in India. So I was like, it was kind of like, I felt a little buffered from everything. And I thought, well, if I, you know, we didn't even have internet most of the day. So I just thought I I was kind of, it was kind of a nice place to like, if you're going to get
0: rejections to get rejection. <laughs> like not, yeah, Exactly. Be halfway around the world in India and right, without internet like, access.
1: Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So you're like, huh, whatever. But, so
0: did that story, that story wound up in your collection?
1: Yeah, it was the title story of the collection. It was Cowboys and East Indians. So, okay, which is, a, um, which
0: is a great title, by the way.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so it, 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 that happened. And then, I mean, then I will say things kind of went quick. I mean, things went quickly in terms of, like, getting an agent after that. But then, you know, then I had a whole, like, other slew of despond and in, in terms of um, – I, you know, then it took forever to sell my story collection. So it was a, well, that
0: sto- was a rough road. Well, yeah, but story collections are hard. I mean, they've always been hard sales, especially, you know, especially in recent decades. I mean, it's, you know, novels are a pain in the ass. Like story collections are like twice that, if not more. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. you, once you, once you got the story published in Virginia quarterly, did your agent, the agent that you wound up with, did he or she, uh, come after, you know, come to you or did you go to them?
1: Well, it was, a, again, it was this sort of funny thing where I had been on staff at Breadloaf, So I had met my agent, like, you know, as I was like helping her get her room, you know, like I, I, we had met, we had met just like socially and I really liked her, but I didn't, um, who is she? Um, Catherine Fawcett. She's, um, so she's also Ben Percy and Laura Vandenberg's agent. Okay. And, um, and Laura was, was, is a very good friend of mine. And so, um, Laura was like, you should talk to Catherine. I said, I don't have a book ready or anything. And she's, and, um, and uh, yeah, I met her and I really liked her and we sort of had kept in touch a little bit. But, and she was one of those also an agent that wasn't completely freaked out by a story collection because, you know, a lot of agents, a lot of people that had after VQR who had contacted me when they knew I was working on a story collection, were just like, peace out, you know?
0: <laughs> so <laughs> it was... Um, Did they actually say peace out or no?
1: Yeah, yes, no. Um, <laughs> they said, well, if you have a novel, like, come back to us, or, you know, that was kind of...
0: But, you so, know, this is what I don't understand, because, in, in, like, you know, we always hear about how life is speeding up and technology and people are ingesting things and quick bursts and stuff. It seems like this, you know, the short story would be better suited in some ways to the culture... Mm-hmm. That we live in now, but that hasn't really registered with publishers, or that's not really how it manifests in terms of literature? Like, I don't know.
1: I don't know either, but I mean, I will say when my story collection first was getting shopped, the rejections I got were, they were really lovely, but they almost all ended with... But we wish this wasn't a story collection. <laughs> We'd love to see her novel. And I just thought, oh, okay, I'd love to see my novel too, but um, <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, right.
0: I know that feeling. So or, do you feel like the short story is your form? Like that's where you fit most naturally? Or are you thinking about long form now after publishing this collection?
1: Well, I'm I'm just about finished with a novel right now. So, ah. it's, um, so it's been kind of – and I have to say it has been a slog. Um, it is not – I, I, I don't even, yeah, I don't even know that I know, the, I don't, I don't know that I would say short story is my form, but that writing the novel has been a whole
0: different beast. <laughs> I Har- would say. Harder? Harder for you?
1: Oh, so much harder. It's been so much harder for me. How,
0: I don't know. How long did it take yeah. you? I've long?
1: been working on it now for like, I guess, I mean, on and off because of, you know, I'll go, I'm a really bingy writer, so I'm not like one of those, I wish I was a really great writer that sat down every day and like at a certain time and wrote, and, but I'm not, I, I will binge. Right. And then I will not write for a while. So I guess two, maybe like two years now, a
0: little okay. over two years. I want to talk to you about this because I've been wrestling with this myself about like bingy versus like hyper-disciplined every day, right. mili- military style. And like, I get the argument that like, you know, you can trick yourself into thinking that you don't have it on a Mm -hmm. particular day, it's just not the right energy or Mm -hmm. whatever, and so you'll come back to it when you feel like writing or when that that itch is there. I understand that, okay? But like and I've also had the experience where I've gotten good work done on a day where I didn't necessarily Mm -hmm. feel like sitting down and doing it. Right, right. But I also think that there's something to the idea that if you have like a good sense of your own energies, you have a good sense of Mm -hmm. self and your own creative self that like you know you can work in bursts and that you can mm-hmm. get you can get your best work done when you're when you're there as long and as long mm-hmm. as you don't have yourself on some sort of like timetable that's like really you know um restricting like if you i mean if you have a deadline that's one thing but if you're just working on a book and um you know it, it doesn't necessarily matter if it goes to your agent this mm-hmm. year or or early next year or whatever mm-hmm. you know maybe it's okay to sit down and work that way i mean plenty of writers have done yeah. it i guess it's like how do you how do you measure that? Like, how do you know that you're getting enough work done while working in a bingey fashion? Like, do you are you counting wor- are you counting words or are you just?
1: No, I mean, I, I no, no, and it's been. I, I mean, it's so funny because I actually just printed out my novel on Monday for the first time. Like, I hadn't actually. Put it all together, and um, but it's funny. Everyone keeps asking me, like, how many words is it? I'm like, um, I have no uh, idea. How, how many
0: pages How many pages? How many pages printed out? It's
1: close to 300. So I don't know. Like it's, it doesn't. I how yeah, big, I, again, how big like, is the,
0: how big is the font? <laughs>
1: yeah, um, 14 part, No, I, it's 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 12 point font times New Roman. It's okay. Um, so that's good. But it it's but it's been interesting because so the two people that were my huge huge mentors at Houston were Antonia Nelson and Robert Boswell. Like they are like the best teachers possible. And um, it's interesting because like Boswell is such a, he writes every day and is really disciplined. And um, he he actually is the person who taught me how to use Scrivener last year to show me how to organize my novel. And he was showing me his drafts and how meticulous, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around like how many drafts he does and how meticulous he is. But, you know, I know Tony is a much more like, she's much more of a binge writer and she kind of writes like, you know, she write. I mean, she's obviously incredibly prolific, but she, um, she, they work so differently and because they're married, I always just think that's so funny that they have such different writing styles.
0: So, okay. How do you, cause I have Scrivener. How do you use it?
1: Oh my God. I, I still am confused by it, to be honest.
0: Okay. But what, what was he showing you? You just like, you, you break each, like you can create multiple files within a file. So like each.
1: Right. you just break and each chapter was- down and. Yeah, though he breaks his book down by scenes, which I was just like, what? <laughs> I mean, that was why I was just blown away by like how he organizes it. Because yeah, there's like so many different drafts, and I guess in that way, Scribner's good. I, to be honest, I've given up on Scribner, so um, I. I think it was too technical. I don't, I don't know. I got confused after like a month and I was like I'm going to go back to
0: word. Well, I'm fascinated. Oh. I'm, I'm I'm kind of the same way, but I'm fascinated by writers. Like is is um it's Boswell you said? Yeah, Robert is, Boswell. Is 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 he like kind of like a more scientific mind? Well, I guess you kind of are too. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I just I feel like I have these friends who are writers who might be more math-brained than I am and I sort of right. ima- I imagine it in my head that like they're more likely to, uh, systematize their approach to writing in these like really intricate, like ingenious ways than I might be where I'm just like, how about a word doc? You know? Right.
1: (laughs) I mean, well, it was before I even, I asked on Facebook before I even bought Scrivener, I was like, what do you all, what do you people use? And it was really interesting because almost all my writer friends came back and were like, of course we use Scrivener. Like, how can you not organize your novel any other way? And I just thought, oh, right. Um, but I think it was also maybe me trying to move the novel over there was also just procrastination, so I felt like I was working on my I novel. I was
0: going to say, I might spend all, <laughs> all day tomorrow moving yeah, my novel right? over to Scrivener. That sounds like a great day.
1: Right, because then you feel like, I've been working on my novel all day, but
0: really, <laughs> I was just like putzing.
1: So, no, I, I went back to Word. So. Okay.
0: so, what kind of binging are we talking about? If you're a bingey writer, you sit down, you're feeling it, you're ready to go, and you binge mm-hmm. write, like how, many, like how many pages in a, in a sit?
1: Wow. Uh, well, I mean, I can, I can really produce sometimes like when I, I mean, I think about, I think about, I think about the writing so much before I do it, like that when I actually sit down to write, it's really fast. And I don't know. Um, so I can maybe write, gosh, I mean, lately it's been a little slower, maybe, but maybe like, 10 pages.
0: That's a lot. That's, pages. So are you, it, it, so you're putting together the architecture of the story mentally for like weeks on end and like yes. getting it all set yes. in your mind and, and, yeah. and then you sit down and do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I was, um, I'm friends with Kevin Wilson and he was, he was saying that with his writing, like he word for word in his head thinks of like, he pretty much has like the first chapter or, like, the first few pages, like, me- like memorized in his head before he sits down to write. And I just thought, I don't have it quite like that. I, I don't have it, like, word for word. But I definitely – I mean, that's probably why I love being in Wyoming. Like, I'll, t- I'll take these drives between Casper and Laramie. It's 150 miles. And, like, I feel like almost – I don't usually see another car for 150 miles. I see some antelope, but that- nothing else. And for that whole drive, like, all I'll do is just – yeah, like, I'll have – I'll, I'll be thinking about the book and, and thinking exactly how I want, what I want to write. And usually, when I pull up at my parents' or here, I immediately go upstairs and start writing.
0: It's kind of funny. No, that makes sense. You know, that's actually interesting. I mean, how many times has that happened?
1: Uh, quite a few because I go back and forth a lot. So I I um I find that I just find driving is a really good way for me to to write. I mean, you know, not well, physically write, but <laughs> but, but I I, write,
0: I text while driving. It's wonderful. I get my book done that way. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. uh, But no, but that makes sense because you have this kind of like wide open, like tableau or whatever. It's mm-hmm. sort of like a blank page and you can sort of clear mm-hmm. your mind and um, get stuff. done. To-
1: I, I don't get a cell phone signal for most of that drive. So it's, it's like good. Exactly. Phone exactly.
0: So I'm, I'm envying you right now thinking about right. this, just like the piece of it. So, um, well, that's cool. And uh, the novel almost done, going to submit. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel like it's done done or do you feel like you're going to have... <sighs>
1: Uh, no, I think it's going to be – I mean, I'm really lucky because my agent is quite like quite willing to edit with me, and um, she's really – she's such a smart reader, so I feel like um, – I, I think she'll probably have many, many revisions for me to do. But um,
0: Has anybody else read it?
1: No. Weirdly, no. Because when I was in the process of trying to sell my – when I was trying to sell my story collection, I um, – at that point, because so many people were saying, oh, woosh, there was a novel – um, my agent had said, "Well, why don't you try to start working on? If you're already thinking about it, why don't you start? Why don't you try to start working on a novel? We can maybe attach, like, f- you know, 50 pages of a novel with this with these stories." So I started a novel a couple years ago that I really didn't know what I was doing, and I really just wanted to sell the story collection. And um, that novel was not good. And um, I had some people read it then, and it kind of shut me down. And I I didn't end up I just trashed it after I got maybe 100 pages of it. So this time around, I'm kind of—I've been a little more like—I don't want to hear as many voices. I guess I just want to—I wanted to get a whole draft done before anyone read it. So.
0: Well, okay. So, did, how did the story collection ultimately sell? First of all.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, um, it sold eventually to, to Dave Daly at Five Chapters, and you know he was—he had only put out two other books before that. It had been um, Emma Straub's book and Jess Rose collection, both story collections. Right. And I knew five chapters from like the the website and I really liked it. Um, and yeah, Dave, Dave, Dave had the book and he, um, and he, he took it. So it was, it was great because at that point, at that point I actually had thought, well, I think I need to shelve this story collection and, and just start working on a novel and cause it hadn't sold with bigger places. And, I was feeling pretty despondent at that point.
0: Well, but it only takes one. It only takes one. I know, one. right? I mean, I it sounds sort of uh, cliche, but it's the truth. And so um, the novel that you wrote, you know, the 50 pages that you wrote, mm-hmm. which were kind of just like an addendum to the story collection or, or like <laughs> yeah. sales material, you know. Yeah. but uh, you, know, you probably put some good effort into it. Did you find that those 50 pages, uh, even though they didn't uh, materialize into a full manuscript, um, did you find that they informed the writing of the current novel? In any way?
1: Yeah, they did, because I also was, I mean, at that point, I remember thinking, like, I remember thinking, like, okay, you have to write a novel. How do you write a novel? And, I mean, it was one of the few times I actually, like, went to a Borders and, like, went to, like, the writing section. (laughs) I was like, is there a novel writing for dummies? Like, I I was so, like, literally confused. And and maybe because I was trying to be mathematical about it, I was like, okay, well, most books are about 300 pages, and I divide that up into so many chapters. Like, I just went about it like a totally idiot person. Like, I just thought, like, that's the way I should – do it like i should make a graph and like outline everything and um that sounds, and, that
0: sounds as good as of an approach as any i mean come on <laughs> right
1: <laughs> i know like it made me again maybe it made me feel like i was writing or getting something done but this time around it's just been much more like free form like nope just i don't know how long a chapter is supposed to be i mean there isn't i guess a i mean gosh you read I,
0: there's, there's, so no it, there's no there's rules there's no rules it's, right? an, ex- so it's like, an expansive form you can see it done any any number of ways and like i um you know, hearing about like the 50 page um, false start that you did on that novel back when your story collection was on the market makes me think of a book that I'm, uh, I've i been reading about um, The Great Gatsby and its origins. Mm-hmm. And this is going to sound horrible, but I can't remember the title of the book right now and it's, it's not in front of me. Um, that's really awful. It's called, like, oh my God. I'll have to say it in the monologue or, or put it yeah. on the website, but. Anyway, it's all about The Great Gatsby. It's about its origins and about there is like a true crime story that inspired it. And it's a really fascinating book because I've never heard any of this. Like, I Mm -hmm. you know, the woman who wrote this book has done like some really good investigative stuff. And one of the things that she writes about in the book is how during the composition of The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote a play called The The Vegetable. Uh Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. which uh strikes me as like a funny title by something yeah, right? it's something F Scott Fitzgerald wrote but he eventually like he couldn't get it staged and then he eventually like put it into a book and it just wasn't a success at all and like really mm-hmm. the only people who read it are like scholars and uh like Fitzgerald completists and people who are like super ramped mm-hmm. up to know everything that he ever wrote but um the the author makes a very compelling case and it's it's pretty pretty obvious that there are direct through lines from that play no, to the right. to Gatsby, and that yeah. he he couldn't have read Gatsby without it. So like, right. It's always heartening to like hear those kinds of stories because it makes me realize that you know even if something is a, a failure creatively, quote unquote, mm-hmm. a failure, um, it, it's often a necessary failure if you keep going. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So yeah. Anyhow. Yeah,
1: it was it was it was good. I just it made me realize also like I have so many friends who have said like oh I have an I you know. I had, like, two novels shelved in in my desk or whatever, and I just thought, oh, my God. Like, I I, I couldn't imagine at that point abandoning something because it just, you know, writing's hard. So I just thought, no, I can't abandon. But but it was kind of a good practice. It was good practice because I felt much more like free trying to – start the second time
0: so right well i certainly wish you luck with it it's been really fun talking with you I can, oh my god it's been awesome to talk to you and i uh, i congratulate you on the story collection and hopefully this novel will be out um, <laughs> on, on bookshelves before too long
1: i don't know about that um yeah that would be that'd be good i just have to now start this log that is revision
0: <laughs> right well i wish you luck with it thanks for talking to me
1: Thank you so
0: much, Brad. All right, you guys. There you have it. That is Nina McConagly. Go get her story collection. It's called Cowboys and East Indians, and it's out there now from Five Chapters Books. You can find Nina online at ninamcconogly.com. She's on the Facebook, and she's also on Twitter, where her handle is at Nina WYO. That's at Nina WYO. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, don't forget, if you want to get that free audiobook download, go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, the address is audibletrial.com slash other people. Also, uh, please don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this program and to keep up with new episodes. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. Uh, you get the app. The app is free. And then you don't have to do anything. New episodes automatically upload as if by magic to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And best of all, you can access the show's full archives and all premium content right there in the app. So here's how it works. It's very easy. You get the free app. And then you get 50 episodes for free automatically. They'll be there waiting for you. And then uh, if you want to access the other, uh, what is it, 200 shows, you sign up for premium. It's $2. That's it. Just 2 bucks a month. I'm trying to make this a no-brainer. You sign up for Premium, you support the show for 2 bucks, and you get access to everything. Every single episode, every conversation in full, right there on your device, whenever you want to listen, wherever you go. So please go get that free app and sign up for Premium. I would greatly appreciate that. All right? And uh, I hope I didn't sound too angry about Valentine's Day. Uh, Look, if you like the holidays, if that's your thing, that's okay. It's okay. I embrace uh, diversity in this life diversity of opinion it's not the worst thing in the world valentine's day even if it has uh, devolved over the years into a largely uh, corporate construct that makes people feel anxious competitive uh, depressed and unworthy that's all right that's what you like you do you it's a free country please remember that benjamin disraeli claimed to have read uh, pride and prejudice at least 16 times and that proust was called, quote, the little Marcel his entire life. That's it for now. Thanks again to Nina McConigley. Go get uh, her book, Cowboys and East Indians. Thanks to Five Chapters Books for the work that they do, good indie press, and uh, thanks to you for listening. Thanks for putting up with me. (laughs) I know you put up with a lot. I realize that, especially longtime listeners. Your uh, masochism is what keeps this show going. Your willingness to subject yourself to this program week after week is one of my life's greatest blessings. And uh, I heart you. I heart you. I think I just hearted. (laughs)